Yeah, I've got this one. Hello. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Thanks, but I'm just gonna, actually just going to move that over there. Hi, everyone. Uh, as Nikki said, my name is Matt. Uh, along with my wife and our two kids, uh, we've been part of this church for almost eight years now, uh, which is amazing. And uh, it's really lovely to be here this morning. It's always a privilege to preach at uh, my home church. Um, yeah, it's, it's never taken for granted. So thanks as always to Pete, Nikki, the team, and our speaking team who support and encourage each other for those of us that uh, have the privilege to do this. Uh, our theme is facets. Uh, Pete spoke last week. He introduced the theme. You should go back and check it out online if you didn't hear that message or that intro in particular, actually, because he really outlined what this theme is about. And in a nutshell, it means that every Sunday, someone's going to get up here and talk about a particular facet of Jesus. We're looking at Jesus. And it's looking at Jesus through different angles, different facets of who he is. Facets is a weird word. The more you look at it, the more you think I've misspelt it. It is right. I checked many times. I've chosen two this morning. One that I would say is probably the facet of Jesus that I find the most inspiring and perhaps the most compelling. And the other is probably the facet of Jesus I find the most personally challenging and difficult to engage with. My theme is miraculously human. You see, the humanity of Jesus is the thing I find most compelling and inspiring. It would be enough to have the scripture, to have the Old and New Testament with these incredible stories and songs and poetry and history and letters. That would be enough. We could glean enough about what it is to be a, a follower of Christ with that. It would be enough to have the Holy Spirit, a living, guiding presence in our lives. But we get this amazing four-book sequence where we get to see Christ embodied in humanity. And that means when I ask the question, what does it mean to be fully human? I have an example. It would be enough to have all that other stuff and to go have a go at it, but we get Jesus and we get to see what he does, how he speaks, who he speaks to, where he spends his time, all the places he finds himself. We get this example of the human life lived the best way. Childhood to adulthood, the whole range of emotions. He laughs, he cries, he grieves, he mourns. He experiences great joy. We know he wept. All of it we get to see in Jesus' life. I find the miracles of Jesus really difficult to connect with. Because you see, in the way that I have been a child and remained a child even when I was meant to become an adult, in the way that I haven't necessarily got there yet, but in the way that I've lived that, in the way that I've grieved, the way that I've wept, the way that I've laughed, the way that I have to make decisions about where I spend my time, who I spend my time with, how I act, how I interact. My life doesn't look like walking on water, raising people from the dead, restoring sight to those who don't have it, or feeding people with one lunchbox. I can't do that stuff. And there's an uncomfortable laughter in the room. <laughs> but I don't think I'm on my own. And the reason I don't think I'm on my own is because when I talk about this, I usually get one of two responses. One is a queue of people waiting to tell me I don't have enough faith. You'd be amazed how many people queue to tell me that. <laughs> Man, honestly, I need like a ticket system, like a cheese counter. But the other is people who come to me quietly and go, I thought it was just me. I thought I was the only one who 
had never walked on water or raised a friend from the dead or, or healed someone from 50 miles away. I thought it was just me. I find these things difficult to connect with because I can't connect with that day-to-day -day lived experience of seeing those miraculous moments come to fruition in my presence. Now, for those of you who were in part of the uncomfortable laughter, let me be super clear this morning. I believe that the miracles of Jesus took place. Physically, literally, I believe those things happened. In fact, I've got proof, because I've preached here quite a few times over the past eight years, and often on the miracles of Jesus. All just proving my evidence to this point, you might think. <laughs> I also believe if I took this microphone and passed it around the room, this would be a room full of miracles. There would be people who would love to get hold of this mic and tell me about a miracle they'd seen or had happened in their own life. I've had them happen in my life. I believe in miracles. But the challenge I have is that if I look at the humanity of Jesus, I connect. And if I look at the miracles of Jesus, I disconnect. And that means I'm in danger of having two Jesus. The, the wise man, the, the, the great example, the in all the places he shouldn't be, with the people he shouldn't be with, that I can follow, standing up against injustice, standing up against religious mobs, that Jesus, the human Jesus, I go, amazing. And then the other Jesus is kind of magic man Jesus, rolling around galleries, zapping people, forming crowds, bringing people to the front with their ailments. That's the Jesus that I start to end up with, human Jesus and then miracle man Jesus. And actually, I'm not sure that's a helpful way to follow Jesus. I'm not sure it's the best way to follow Jesus. There's a quote that's going to come up on the screen. It's from Dr. Bethany Solareder. Dr. Solareder wrote a book, and it's called Why Is There Suffering? A Theological Choose-Your-Own-Adventure. It's a brilliant book. It basically takes the question, why is there suffering? You start with an intro, and then from the end of that intro, she asks you how you're feeling, and then you decide where to go next. So you might read the intro and then go to chapter eight, and then at the end of chapter eight, you answer a different question, you go to chapter three, and at the end of chapter three, you go to chapter nine. It's amazing, it's utterly brilliant. I had the chance to meet her uh, last year, she's brilliant. But she says this about miracles. Sometimes people can get carried away with seeking miracles. If a miracle doesn't happen, people assume God is not present. But equally, people can camp around the miracle, confusing it with the reality to which it is meant to point. The point of the miracles is not to be miracles. They point to something more. They always point to something more. And so for me, as I find myself disconnected, I started to ask myself, well, what is the point of these miracles if I can't perform them? And maybe the point is to find out the meaning behind them. And when we do that, I wonder if we might start to encounter miracles along the way. Because if I can see what Jesus is pointing to, if I can find the meaning behind the miracle, then I can go after the meaning without waiting for a miracle. I can follow in his footsteps without screaming and crying out and waiting for the miraculous to happen because I can go after what Jesus is pointing me to without needing there to be a miraculous moment before I get started. And similarly, when I then encounter a miracle, I don't need to camp around it or build my life upon it. How many times did we sing this morning? My life is built on Jesus, not that thing that Jesus did for me. My life is built on Jesus. I follow in his footsteps. I don't camp around that one time this thing happened that I'm grateful for.
that's not following Jesus, that's camping around a miracle. So this morning I want us to look at one, just one miracle of Jesus. It's actually the first, believed to be the first recorded one. It's found in John chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, it will come up on the screen as well. Uh, it's sort of known as the water into wine. It's a great miracle. And it starts in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted what it had become and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn in the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. You have kept the good wine until now. A couple of things we need to know about this miracle. I mean, there's stacks. I could tell you about some of the context of this miracle, but I don't have the time, and it would be a very boring history lesson for some of you, and I'd be thrilled, and about five other people would be thrilled. I can name you. I know who you are, <laughs> but that's not what we're going to do. Suffice to say, you need to know a couple of things about this. One, we don't know where Cana is. That's not important. I just think it's important to remember we don't have all the answers sometimes, okay? There's like three or four places that might be Cana, okay? So the next time you find yourself in a theological battle, and you don't find yourself going, there's three or four things this might be, you're not following the footsteps of a grand theological tradition, which is we don't even know where Cana is. You can find people who'll take you to where they think it is, but we don't know if it was there. That's probably not as important as I wanted it to sound like it was. I just really wanted to say it. <laughs> Wouldn't our lives all be so much better if we were better at going, well, there's three or four things it could be, and I'm not sure which one yet. Practice that this week. There you go. Sermon over. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> He said to himself. Um, yeah, so that's the second thing is that about weddings. We uh, Jewish weddings in the first century aren't like weddings today. They're not like an afternoon evening do. They, they could have lasted for days. In fact, the whole Jewish marriage, the, the impact of the law, the inequality in it, uh, how it happens, the, the, the gap between betrothal and, oh, it's amazing. It's fascinating. You should Google it. It's brilliant. You'll find loads of cool stuff on there about it. Really interesting. But what's important to know, and this we have to know for this this morning's message is that hospitality really matters in that culture. To fail in hospitality isn't just embarrassing, it has a deeper cultural and social implication. So when Jesus' mum, who's at the wedding, comes to Jesus and his 12 disciples who are at the wedding and says, they have run out of wine, you have to know that what she's talking about isn't an embarrassing faux pas. It's the announcement and arrival of a deep-seated shame that is about to impact everyone connected to this wedding. And that shame is wide because that is everyone from the bride and groom, their families, the stewards and servants, everyone is going to be hit with this shame as soon as it becomes clear that the party is over because the wine is given out. That shame is also deep 
This is not a shame that kind of you go, oh, I'm really sorry that happened. See you at the next wedding, everyone. That shame is a deep-seated cultural and societal shame that would have impacted everything. Some scholars will argue that it would have marred the marriage itself. Imagine at the end of your wedding day, those of us who are married, you get to that point when something happens out of your control that means that people think about your marriage differently, not your wedding, your marriage Everything you do marred by shame, shame, shame. And it's long because it's not just, it's not just that, that it's you. This would have gone on for generation after generation. This is a shame that would have traveled with your family all the way through. Generations from now, people would have still remembered the time the wine gave up. And I think it's interesting that Jesus' first recorded miracle doesn't raise anyone from the dead doesn't heal anyone who is sick, doesn't save someone from death, doesn't even happen in a way that everyone knows it happened, but instead simply exists to stop shame casting a shadow on one group of people. The first recorded miracle. The first recorded miracle of Jesus. John chapter 2, before he's done anything else. This miracle doesn't do anything physical for someone's body or their being. It doesn't do anything dramatic and public. It doesn't calm a storm. It, doesn't, it literally only stops shame getting a grip on this group of people. And I wonder if the meaning behind this miracle isn't that we should be shameless. That we should be a shameless people. I love the part where Jesus' mum comes to him and she says... They've run out of wine. They've run out of wine. And Jesus gives this response. It's quite a curt response if you read it. He calls her woman for a start, which obviously, I don't know about you, I would never do that to my mom. <laughs> Wouldn't have been at the wedding. <laughs> I got a Northern Irish mom. You don't call, you don't say, you call them woman. I'll tell you that for a start. There's no woman in my house. It seems a little curt. There's lots of thoughts about what he's actually doing, but the, the best or my favorite or the one that makes most sense to me is what he's essentially doing is saying, Mom, what on earth has this got to do with us? Like, it's got nothing to do with us. This is none of our business, Mom. Why have you brought this to me? It's none of my business. Now, we don't know what happens next because all we get is that she says to the servants, do what he tells you. But I like to think when I imagine the story that Jesus' mum gives him the look that only a mother can. <laughs> Does anyone notice we don't hear an argument from Jesus? <laughs> he gets that one line and it's like, okay, son, you've had your moment. And then she just, without even speaking to him, turns to them and goes, do what he tells you, as in, you're going to tell them something, son. <laughs> Instructions will flow, I will say no more. Thank you, mum is out. Right? Everyone who's got a mum knows what it is. Everyone who has a mum is going to go, oh, I never do that. Yes, you do. <laughs> you all do. Do whatever he tells you. What's that got to do with us? Something happens in the interim. And whether it's a look from his mother or whether Jesus, not needing to Google first century Jewish context, because he is first century Jewish context, knows that running out of wine equals shame. Running out of wine means shame is on its way. It takes all of what we can see in the Bible about four seconds for either the impact of his mother or the understanding of what's coming down the track for Jesus to change his mind from what's that got to do with us to let's get on with this. Shame is coming. And Jesus wants no part in it. 
And then it makes me wonder if there's a meaning in this miracle. Might it be that we're just meant to live shameless lives? How many of us in this room have found our lives marred by shame? The shame of our past, the shame of decisions we have made or decisions that have been made for us, things that have happened or been done to us, things that we have done ourselves. Shame wants to cast a shadow on our lives, and if we follow Jesus, shame has no place. Jesus wants to perform a miracle because he wants shame to be no more. Friends, this morning, if shame is marring your life, then we would love to pray for you. We'd love to do deeper prayer for you. We would love to introduce you to our counseling service, or we would love to introduce you to a counselor that can help you work through those issues that will help you remove shame from your life. I am not going to stand here this morning and say that shame can go like that. That's magic man, Jesus. Following Jesus means doing the work. But you have to decide to start doing the work. And maybe that's what this morning is. Maybe this morning we say, I can't fully follow Jesus. I can't keep crying out for miracles if actually shame is casting such a shadow on my life that I'm missing the miracles around me because I'm blinkered by it, because I'm held by it, because other people want to keep me in it. Jesus wants no part of that. He will literally move heaven and earth, molecularly transform liquid to stop shame having a place in one wedding on one day. So think what he wants to do for you this morning. Here's another question. Why 2,000 years ago, Jesus performs a miracle to get rid of shame? Do I feel like we've spent 2,000 years as a church just lying on people? Just like, I don't even know what word I was looking for, languishing, labeling, just throwing it at people, hurling it at people. Why has it felt like for almost 2,000 years the church has been the bringer of shame, not those who seek to, to get rid of it? Why does it feel like I belong to a, a body, a global family, the historical church that has spent more time wanting to cast shame upon people than call out no shame on them? Why does Jesus spot the sweetest wine and we walk around going, they have no wine. They have no wine. I don't know if you know, they've run out of wine. Jesus doesn't want that so much that he molecularly transforms liquid so that water becomes wine and shame doesn't get to cast a shadow on that place. We spent 2,000 years screaming, look who doesn't have wine over there. Look at them with their run out of wine. Friends, I think we're being asked to do better. You want to see a miracle? Start by being someone who stands between shame and anyone else. That's a place to find ourselves. You want to live miraculously human lives? Here is shame coming. Here is anyone else. Stand in the gap. Move heaven, move earth to stop shame getting anywhere near anyone else you have the chance. I look back with such sadness at the times that my words or actions cause shame on others. But I also look back at the times when my silence and inaction didn't do enough to stop it getting to others. If I want to live a miraculously human life, I might not be able to turn water into wine, but I can see the shadow of shame on the horizon and I can do everything in my power to stop it getting anywhere near them. That's a miraculous human life. Second thing uh, is brave. I think, I think this story has a, a brilliant moment of bravery. If you heard me talk in September, I talked about the healing of the 10 men with leprosy, and I told you that when I'd gone back to the story, I'd realized I hadn't remembered it right. I'd sort of misremembered the order. And this is sort of the same, because if you, if you flick the next slide up there for me, Josh, nowhere in this passage do we find out when the water becomes wine. I don't know if you've noticed that before. It's not there. 
the, in fact, the only clue we get in, in this translation is that the servants who had drawn the water knew. So we might be confident enough to say that when the servants drew it out of the pots, it might have been still water. But even that is a bit of a leap even for me to get to that point. We don't know when the miracle happened. All we know is that Jesus says to the servants, go and fill these six stone jars with water. Now, again, history essay could be incoming, but I promise I won't. But six jars, uh, six is the imperfect number culturally. Also, the sixth day is when man is created in the creation story. There might be some clue we're getting here about something else. And stone uh, is a kind of, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a material that can't become impure. That, that's why it's holding the water for purity washing. Stone can't become ritually impure. Like I say, Google it. It's brilliant. There's loads in there. So he takes these six jars and he says to the servant, look, go and fill them to the brim with water. And the servants do it. Now remember, his mum has just said, do whatever he tells you. So they fill the jars to the brim. Now, if I'm a servant at this wedding, and this woman I probably don't know has just come to me and said, do you see my son over there, the guy with the plus 12 invite? <laughs> no time to talk about that either. <laughs> Him and his 12 mates, do whatever he tells you. I'd be thinking, I really hope he's got wine. <laughs> Do you think they've all got wine? Because then the plus 12, suddenly that's no problem at all. Bring as many mates as you like if you've all got wine. So I go to him and I go, okay, I'm going to do whatever you tell me. And he goes, fill the jars with water. At this point, I might be thinking, okay, there's some wine coming. We're going to need to, to purify some cups. We're going to need to cleanse some things. Maybe we need all the water we can get in the cleansing jars. Good, I'm going to do that. And I come back to him and I go, I've filled the jars right to the brim. And he says, great, now take a cup. And, and fill it. And I might have gone, okay, yep, it's weird, but all right, do whatever he tells me. I'll fill the cup. There you go, Jesus, I've filled the cup with water. What next? Now I take it to your boss and tell him it's wine. <laughs> ah, ah, you see, the thing is, Jesus, <laughs> I was kind of coping you and the lads had some wine with you. This this isn't going to work for me. Because you see, those stone jars, they don't, we don't drink out of those. We, we cleanse our hands, our feet, our implements out of that water. We don't drink that stuff. I know what those jars are for. And we don't drink it. And, and secondly, Jesus, you might have misheard, but we've run out of wine. Like, that's what we're looking for here. Wine and you're asking me to go and take stone jar water, hand it to the chief steward of a wedding, and go, close your eyes, and this is wine. <laughs> and I just don't know if I'm doing that this morning, Jesus. I just don't know if I'm up for that, right? I don't know if I'm up for making that much of a fool of myself. I don't know if I'm up for putting my life in my hands like that. I don't know if you know, but I know those stone jars. I filled them with water myself. I've been around them a while. They don't. There's no wine in those jars. That's the water jars. What if the servant had just said no? What if the servant had just gone, nah, you're all right, Jesus. I'm going to risk the no wine at the party strategy because really as a servant, it'll probably impact me slightly less than some of the others. I'm just going to let that one slide and we'll just work out how it goes. I'm not going to do your water cup thing. What if the wine was in the jars the moment the water went in and 
The servant says no. And the party gets cut. Shame goes, and there's six jars of wine sitting because one servant wouldn't do what he was told. Do whatever he tells you. We miss the servant in this story, don't we? We love Jesus. We love his mum. We love him calling her a woman and him giving him the eyes. We love the bit at the end. It's brilliant. We're getting to it. Don't worry. We'll get there. But we forget this servant who gets told, do whatever he tells you, gets given a list of wild instructions that make no sense and does them. Friends, what if the miracles are waiting if we just do what Jesus tells us? What if there are miracles sitting next to us if we will just be obedient? What if we just do what he'd already told us? There's less excitement about that one. <laughs> do what Jesus tells me. Oh, yeah, I get to listen. I get to hear his voice. I get to, to, to actively be part of Jesus' story today. And I will do what he tells me and I will find miracles. What if we just took the red letters of Jesus in those four gospels and tried doing those? What if we started loving our enemies? Becoming like children? Throw the first stone if you dare. <laughs> Got no sin? You get to throw a stone. What if we lived the words of Jesus that he's already told us. Maybe there's miracles waiting on that path. Do whatever he tells you. The list might be wild, but there's a miracle waiting just on the other side. Love your neighbor as yourself. Build your life on me. What if we were willing to live like Jesus and sacrifice ourselves day in and day out? Sue and I were talking earlier today. What if we picked up our cross every day and followed the way and the word of Jesus? What if there are miracles waiting if we simply went back to the Gospels, looked at the words he's already told us, did them, and maybe discovered there were miracles waiting all along? What if instead of seeing stone pots full of water, we went back and revisited and discovered the sweetest wine? What if instead of being too afraid to go to those places or those people, what if we were too afraid to dip our cups into those wells that perhaps we thought didn't have anything for us and instead we discover the sweetest wine waiting because Jesus wants to do a miracle? What if we just have to be brave and do what he tells us or do what he's told us and live miraculously human lives? One more from me this morning. My, it is my favorite bit of the story. The, the steward gets the wine. We don't know when it was wine. It, I mean, in, in one version, it's wine the moment it touches his lips. It's a frightening version, right? You're the servant carrying a cup of what is clearly water. <laughs> and it only becomes wine the moment it touches it. Imagine that, right? That's cool. I love that. It doesn't say that. But it would be cool if it did. He takes the wine and he goes straight to the bridegroom and he goes, <laughs> I love this. Most people serve the drunk people bad wine. <laughs> But we're coming to the end of this party, and you've gotten the best, the best wine. My friend and old mentor, the Reverend Dr. Russell Rook, preaches a brilliant sermon on this passage that's simply called, The Best is Always Yet to Come. <laughs> I love it. If you ever get a chance to find it, I'm sure it's online somewhere. You should listen to it. It's brilliant. I want us just to go one step beyond that this morning. Because you see, I think this miracle shows us the type of parties that Jesus wants us to throw. Now, for anyone who grew up in the church like I did, I never heard many stories about the types of parties Jesus wanted to throw. 
I heard a lot of sermons about the sort of parties I should definitely be nowhere near. <laughs> but I never heard many people stand up on stages and talk about the sort of parties Jesus wants us to throw. But, but isn't that what this story is about? Because you see, if ever there was a story in which any wine would do, this is it. They have no wine. We will literally take any awful wine. I should tell you, I'm teetotal, okay? I don't, I don't drink alcohol at all. Um, I grew up in a teetotal church and uh, just stuck with it. Uh, honestly, you could serve me any wine and I think, I mean, it could be two pound, it could be 900 pound, wouldn't know the difference. Not a clue what wine tastes like. But what I do know is in this story, that if ever there was a moment where a miracle of turning water into any old wine would have sufficed, this is it. Jesus' mum doesn't come and say, they've run out of the good stuff. She says they have none left, and this party is about to be over. In a situation where any wine would do, don't you think it matters that Jesus provides the best? Don't you think it tells us something that in a moment where literally any liquid that isn't water and resembles wine in any way would have been enough to be a miracle? Jesus, in fact, goes, no, 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 no. You're not getting any old wine. You're going to get the best wine you've ever tasted. Don't you think that tells us as followers of Jesus the types of parties we're meant to be throwing? And look, I'm not just talking about physical parties, obviously, but bear with me for a minute. It wouldn't hurt, would it? <laughs> would it hurt if the church was known for throwing better parties? Like, people know what we petition. People know what we protest. People know our pickets. Wouldn't it be great if they knew our parties were awesome? Like, wouldn't it be awesome if we were known better as the party people than those other ones? But I'm not even just talking about physical parties. I'm talking about what happens when someone's wine runs out and we have to give them something and we give them the best. We give them always the best. Our time, our energy, our love, our conversation. Not 45 seconds, three minutes this morning. And by the way, don't stop at three minutes. Keep going. You did this point for me already, Nikki. Thank you, because I'm running out of time. More, the best. We give more. We give the best. We offer people. And when we think it's running out, when they get to the point where they go, oh, man, I have screwed this up again. There is no way they could love me. We love even better. When we get let down, we go back. When, we, when people find out and they go, oh, you won't believe the shame that I've had, we go, you know what? We want to walk through that with you because we only want the best for you. Not any old wine, not a bit better than it was before. We only want the best for you. Wouldn't that sound like a miracle? In their amazing book, The Art of Neighboring, there's this wonderful quote from Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon. They say this, it may not seem that we have much, but when we give from what we have, something sacred happens. God uses the small things that we bring to him and multiplies them into a miracle in someone else's life. I might not be able to turn water into wine, but I can take the best of what I have, offer it as the best to someone else, and watch God do a miracle. So I don't need to camp out or cry out for those miracles to happen. I don't need to sign up for a course or be told I don't have enough faith or just pray harder. I can actively follow the words and example of Jesus, and maybe in living a miraculously human life, miracles are around the corner. Because God does them, not me anyway. We don't sing a song about ourselves being the miracle maker. That would be an awful song. <laughs> He's the miracle maker. God is the miracle maker. Christ embodied in Jesus of Nazareth, the miracle maker. We 
are called to follow him obediently and do whatever he says slash said. And way to go. See if we find some miracles along the way. One more thing on this. I didn't get to sign Pete and Nikki's book last week. Last week, if you weren't here, we celebrated 10 years of Pete and Nikki's leadership of this church. Um, we had some Nosecco. No one turned that into wine, I noticed. Thank you. <laughs> like I say, wouldn't have been able to touch it, so thank you for not doing that. And there was a book, and I didn't get to sign it. And if you were here last Sunday, it was a beautiful, honoring celebration of who they are and the way they've led us. Yes. In just a minute, you're saying what they're all thinking, my love. I promise. <laughs> 32 minutes. Come on, Matt. You speak for all of us, and the child shall lead us. Um, yeah. In the midst of all of the applause, the adulation, the standing ovation, it would have been really easy for you to miss what Pete and Nikki did in that moment. And this is what I would have written in your book. In that moment, when we stood and applauded you, our leaders stood here and they talked about holding someone's hand as they said goodbye to this life. They talked about putting on the kettle for people when their prayers haven't been answered in the way they hoped. And a beautiful man called Tim, he loved this church in a very unique way. And you could have easily stood here last Sunday clapping and cheering and whooping and wailing and missed that Pete and Nikki pointed us to the miraculously human way to live. Because you didn't ask us for more applause. You didn't ask us to pledge our loyalty to you in this room. You didn't ask for anything from us. In fact, the only thing you asked was, go and do the same in your community. Live miraculously human lives in your kitchen, on your street, in your workplace. If you don't believe me, friends, go back and watch it. Go back and watch it. We're all standing, clapping and cheering, all good, nothing wrong with that. And you guys get up here and go, let us tell you what this really is about. And you pointed us to the miraculously human. Because if 400 people give the best of our time, of our hearts, of our love, then I can't help but think we'd see a lot more miracles. Friends, I think to be miraculously human means that we expect the best from our Father in heaven and we give the best to those that we have the privilege to have in our lives. And when we do that, we might see miracles along the way. And so this morning, those two facets of Jesus that might feel disconnected like they were for me, I want to encourage us that the call on the life of the follower of Jesus is not to follow a human Jesus and then try to find some miracles on the other side, but to recognize that the way he lived was miraculously human. That when those miracles were performed, it was never for the sake of himself. It was never for the sake of a show. It was never a performance, but it pointed to something deeply meaningful for not only the people there, but for us who choose to follow him. And so whether this morning we need to bring an end to shame on our own lives or we need to commit to being those who bring less shame to those around us, whether this morning we need to be brave and recognize that we are not doing what he says, or maybe if we're honest, we don't even know what he said. Friends, if all that happened this morning was people got out of here and started reading the four gospels more regularly to see what Jesus actually said, miracle. Miracle right there. What did he say? Do it. Miracle. Promise. Easy. Or whether this morning we need to recognize that actually we've been not expecting the, guess, the best from him and, and in, if we're truthful, not giving our best to those around us. 
that in our own hearts, perhaps the wine has run dry. We've run out of grace, we've run out of patience, we've run out of time, we've run out of love, we've run out of concern for our neighbor. And actually, we're being asked this morning that in a time when any old wine will do, Jesus somehow always gives the best. Imagine our streets, imagine our homes, imagine our families, imagine the schools our kids go to, imagine our workplaces. Imagine the train into London tomorrow morning. Imagine little ones on Thursday. Man, there's a miracle happening right in front of our eyes. Imagine all of these things. Imagine every area that we walk. Imagine every step we take being one in which we follow a miraculously human Jesus, not because we spend our time screaming out for miracles, but because we live without shame. We do what he says, and we expect and give the best, and we discover there are miracles happening all the time. The jars were full of wine. The miracles are there. The miracles are ahead. If we will just find the meaning in this miraculous moment. And instead of crying out to replicate it, we cry out for more time and space and love and filling of the Holy Spirit to follow the miraculously human Jesus. Friends, will you pray with me? Jesus, your life is a lived example of what it is to be miraculously human. We look at your words, we look at your actions, we look at the places you went, and we look at your miracles, God. And we don't look at them with envy because we can't do them. We don't look at them with, with sadness because we've not seen them, God. We look at them with hope and expectation because we know they point us to something, something that matters to your heart. So God, may this be a family that lives without shame and sees shame come nowhere near any of us. May this be a family that lives in bravery, who do what you tell us and what you've told us and step out to see miracles along the way. And may this be a church family that continues to give of our best to those that we have the privilege to serve. Friends, this morning, if you want, there is a prayer team available here or in the connect lines afterwards. If you want to be prayed for, we would love to do that with you. Or maybe you want to spend some time this week just starting to think about where are those areas that you could start to walk in a miraculously human way. Maybe this is something you want to have that conversation about, like Nikki talked about earlier. Maybe that's a conversation you want to keep going or find some accountability with someone. I've talked about deeper prayer. I've talked about counseling. I've talked about counseling outside this building. If that's something that's stirring in you this morning, come and talk to someone and let's start that path together. Let's get you the help you need. But whatever happens this morning, don't leave this place not recognizing that there is a miraculously human Jesus that wants you to live a miraculously human life. So amen.